0: I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. I suppose you could say that wondering about disease has never been quite so in vogue as right now, at least not during my lifetime, because a pandemic's going to do that to you, you know, you're going to talk about it. So we have had more discussion, not just about COVID, but actually about things like polio and the Spanish flu. We've even talked about plagues of centuries that are now far behind us. When it comes to disease, one of the grave concerns from generation to generation has been about contagiousness. We talk about catching a disease. You can catch the measles. You can catch smallpox, or at least time once was when that was possible to catch smallpox. Can you, though, catch cancer? Well, when I was a child, people thought you could as though cancer would spread from one person to another the way many other uh, diseases or illnesses do. We have now come so far down the road from that frame of mind that scarcely anybody I know would ever think of, say, social distancing from someone who is confronting cancer or going through chemo or radiation. Unlike COVID, the distancing thing isn't going to be an issue around a cancer patient conventional wisdom has caught up with the truth. Well, we are going to visit now with somebody who is dedicated to raising a kind of awareness about cancer that is socially healthy and individually inspiring because she, along with many of her associates who are cancer survivors, are very active in their advocacy for the kind of mindset that is going to be of greatest benefit to people who have had a cancer diagnosis or the people around them. Judy Pearson is with us. She's author of a new volume titled From Shadows to Life, a Biography of the Cancer Survivorship Movement. I want you to know that Judy Pearson is also founder of a nonprofit called A Second Act. That's a group that conducts workshops that help guide women cancer survivors as they discover their own personal second acts, hence the name, She's also thoroughly acquainted with a story of a remarkable group called the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, or NCCS. We're going to be visiting with her now about what she has experienced and learned about uh, many of the remarkable people who have rallied around this cause. I should also let you know, before her book, From Shadows to Life, Judy Pearson had already been an author of nonfiction with books about the World War II era, and also a title that won a 2012 International Book Award about her own cancer experience, that volume titled It's Just Hair, 20 Essential Life Lessons. She's on the phone with us right now. Judy, welcome to Constant Wonder.
1: Thank you so much. What a great introduction. I feel far more important than I am.
0: <laughs> did you <laughs> did you ever bump up against that idea that cancer was possibly infectious, contagious? I, I don't remember it quite, but I remember just the hush-hush about it when I was a kid.
1: You know, I didn't personally as a cancer survivor. My uh, diagnosis was 10 years ago, which is a very long time for a cancer survivor, but not... Um, not that far back, but it's funny. My brother was just here visiting last week, and we talked about the hushed voices. I, there was some friend of our parents, and I—I I was probably supposed to be in bed, and I was listening in on grown-up conversations. And it was sort of, you know, that's it. Because prior to the 1970s, um, every every horrible disease that humankind knew about killed because it was contagious. So why wouldn't cancer be the same?
0: Yeah. And from what I've been reading lately, apparently this lasted right up until the 70s that people
1: fought in these terms. They did. They truly did. Actually, until even the 80s. Um, It was uh, until the pretty much when the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship was founded, and they really started making noise about survivorship and what it meant and For them, and I I should let your listeners know as well, they defined survivorship as beginning at the moment someone is diagnosed because that's when you begin surviving cancer and extending through the balance of life. So whether you have been told you have no evidence of disease, you're newly diagnosed, or you have to live with your cancer, you are a survivor.
0: Well, this organization represents a movement, and we're going to talk about that and what the movement has accomplished and what this group has accomplished. Maybe just a little bit of context here, though, uh, about the Nixon years. It's been a lot of years now since President Richard Nixon declared war on cancer and signed an act, the National Cancer Act. And uh, I'm guessing that the NCCS and their functions – probably were, were made uh, somehow more possible because of this act.
1: That's right. That's right. Before this National Cancer Act was signed 50 years ago this year in December, less than 50% of those diagnosed survived the disease. And, and as we've talked about, lived as social pariahs. Both Presidents Kennedy and Johnson wanted to step up cancer research in the hopes that we could, we, we actually were on the cure bandwagon then, but at, but at the very least, um, come up with better treatment modalities. But um, Kennedy's term, as we all know, was cut short by assassination. Johnson um, had to deal with the Vietnam War. And that was draining Treasury. So it wasn't until President Nixon started looking at what his reelection possibilities might be that um, his advisors said, "Hey, cancer's a bipartisan issue. <laughs> Nobody's going to argue with you." So he quite literally, um, not that he probably wasn't also, you know, anti-cancer, but signing something as momentous as this reelected him and started churning out survivors.
0: Yeah, politicians have various motives, don't they?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> well, if this is 1971, the NCCS, it takes another 15 years before the, the uh, first inklings of that organization happen. So I, I do want to jump ahead to that point because that's our focus right now. The, uh, how would a group of people find each other and then get together and, and, and start a movement. I mean, that's uh, that's ambitious. I don't know that they put it in those terms to begin with, but they must have had high hopes.
1: Well, they did. And the two main organizers, um, one, Catherine Logan, um, was a cancer survivor living in Albuquerque who had started a local support group. And so this was, of course, pre-internet, pre-fax, um, Long distance phone calls came at a premium, so the US mail was the way to go. Um, But it was also um, pre-proliferation of support groups. So she she was kind of a pioneer in that. The second organizer was a very esteemed doctor, also a cancer survivor. She listened to him speak, realized he had a healthy Rolodex. And so she wrote all of the invitations Using his Rolodex, they issued about 86 to organizations and individuals across the country, and 23 um, responded affirmatively and came to Albuquerque, not exactly a healthcare mecca, um, for this momentous weekend. And as Fitz, Dr. Mullen, who was um, the guy with the Rolodex, as he said to me when I interviewed him, we just fell into one another's arms because... No one felt comfortable, n- no one had thought to bring a group of people, or did they? nor did they feel comfortable, bring a group of such esteemed people together to talk about this. It was unheard of.
0: I'm so glad that you mentioned that this was before the whole notion of support groups was really much of a thing uh, and right. that this was pioneering. So this Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen, you've spoken with him and interviewed him about this. Tell us a little of his story because he too, obviously, was among the number of cancer survivors. Uh, it, it's quite a a
1: touching account. It is. It really is. So he was. Um, he worked for the U.S. Department of Public Health and had been assigned the the chief health position in Albuquerque or in New Mexico. So he's living in Santa Fe and working in a. Clinic there, and was waiting on a an X-ray one day um, on a little boy who had had a cough, and he suspected that it was pneumonia, but did an X-ray nonetheless. He himself had had a cough and thought, well, maybe maybe I've got a touch of pneumonia, so did his own chest X-ray. And when the two X-rays came out, the results, um, the child did indeed have pneumonia, and Fitz had this cauliflower-sized growth in his chest that was just sort of wrapped around everything. It's what's called a seminoma. And what should have been a relatively simple surgery went horribly wrong. He almost died and he woke up on um, um, a ventilator with an incision from his neck to his groin, practically. The growth was wrapped around a major vein. And it was nicked during the surgery. And then after rec- he recovered from that, his radiation and chemotherapy began. So it was, it, was, um, it was miraculous. All of these people, Marcus, I have to tell you, one of my favorite quotes was um came from mary cassatt who is an artist and she had a friend who survived the sinking of the lusitania and she said to her friend if you were saved it is because you have something else to do in this world and that's the story of these people every one of them probably should have died but didn't and came together to do this
0: that's quite a proverb. That's quite a, a, a sentiment. Isn't that wonderful? And if I'm going to subscribe to that, and if I'm going to take that at face value, then I would imagine that you perhaps have had that same feeling.
1: Well, I made a deal with God. <laughs> if you get me through this, I'll do whatever you want me to do. <laughs> and I think most cancer survivors do. But I, I had had a clean mammogram, and two months later found a lump like sort of in my cleavage. And it's um, when I had my mastectomy, and they surveyed the damage, there were other tumors as well buried very deeply in my breast tissue. And with a kind of aggressive breast cancer I had, by the time I would have felt them, it would have been a much different outcome. So yes, I, I had that notion as well. Okay, I've been spared. What's my plan here? What's the deal?
0: And in your story, you had a son that had just been deployed, I understand, and and you had uh, remarried not long before
1: this? Yep, that's true. I I was a newlywed. Um, My son was about to deploy. We had planned to go to England, where he and his family were living, um, with my younger son and his then-fiancé, to give Nick a big send-off before he left, and this complication arose. So it was all of us saying goodbye, hoping that we all would be together again one day. And we are.
0: And you gave your your new husband uh, the option to be out of the deal.
1: I did. I did. You know, it took both of us a couple of marriages to find one another. And I said to him, you can go. This isn't what you signed up for. And he said, this is exactly what I signed up for. I'm not going anywhere. And he and his parents, my parents are deceased. So he and his parents, um, along with the rest of my family and his family, were just wonderful supporters. And in the researching for this book, um, I realized, um, I guess I knew this tangentially, but of course, not everyone has that. So I, I just really feel very blessed um, about it all. And I truly, you know, I wandered around. i would written these books about World War II, which I just absolutely love. My office is full of memorabilia and old newspapers and just couldn't find the next great story after cancer. So I wrote the little book, It's Just Hair, and then started Second Act. And because of Second Act met um one of the main folks that from shadows to life follows susie lay who lives in tucson so because of second act met susie and learned this story about nccs and then went back a step further to say but wait a minute before nccs things weren't so rosy for survivors so that was how and it's funny isn't it how this war thing keeps coming in and out so Johnson couldn't declare war on cancer because of the war in Vietnam. Nixon declares war on cancer. It's just, it's sort of, it permeates my work, I guess.
0: <laughs> Well, I want to hear about uh, Susie Lay, and I want to hear more about NCCS, and we're going to do that with you in just a moment after a short break. Judy Pearson is with us. She has a new book out titled From Shadows to Life, a Biography of the Cancer Survivorship Movement. Stay with us for more Constant Wonder. Thanks for joining with us for Constant Wonder today. I'm Marcus Smith. It's a great privilege to have Judy Pearson with us. She is a cancer survivor and author of a new volume uh, just about out, I understand. It's called From Shadows to Life, a Biography of the Cancer Survivorship Movement. And Judy, you had just mentioned Susie, I believe her name is Susie Lay. And I want to hear right. her story. You, you, you seem to have a fairly good impression of this woman.
1: Oh, my gosh. She's absolutely amazing. Um But let me just step back just for a second and say there's one more way that the war theme appears in this book, and um, it certainly, I, I believe, is well known to many um, Utah listeners, and that is um, the nuclear testing that went on at the Nevada Test Site in the 50's and 60s. Um, it was the Cold War. We were terrified. And the radiation fallout that all of the citizens in the West it, were told would be okay wasn't okay, and the group of people then who were affected became known as the downwinders. So that's a whole other chapter in the book um, because it does relate to everything, but it that too was a very intriguing part of the research. Susie also has a war connection. She went to Vietnam as a combat nurse and when she came back, she was out processed with a clean bill of health. And not unlike my uh, mammogram story, about a year later um, had some symptoms that she finally uh, went to the doctor, had X-rays, they found, Spots in her uh, chest cavity and around around her her um, clavicle, her collarbone, and it turned out to be Hodgkin's lymphoma. And the army had completely missed it. So she was one of the first people to be treated by combination chemotherapy, which was a revolutionary idea. The funding from from Nixon's Cancer Act helped get that through, and um. It is now the pretty much the status quo in cancer care. I had a cocktail of three different drugs. Susie had four drugs um, and then radiation after that. But she was just amazing and became an oncology nurse at the very beginning of, of oncology nursing and then became a founding member just randomly um, of the NCCS.
0: So I'm, I'm trying to connect the dots here, and if I heard you correctly, after her own diagnosis and treatment she decides to become an oncology nurse
1: yep yep pretty amazing after her own treatment she took a little bit of time off to figure out what she wanted to do um went back to tucson um to the university of arizona hospital it was before the cancer center there was was opened but she um Contacted her own, own oncologist to see if there was a job. Went to work for him in his practice or in his research, and then two of the other nurses said, "Well, there's this new organization, oncology nursing. You should join us." And she said, "Okay." And um, so it was a really, it was a really amazing full circle. She eventually left oncology nursing and became a full-time survivorship advocate, and and worked with or for, some of them were paid positions for a variety of different organizations, again, talking about survivorship, to encourage that it become part of the cancer continuum. There's diagnosis, then there's the tsunami of of treatment, um, diagnostics, and then treatment, and then you get the balloon and the cupcakes and nothing else happens. And people just assume you're going to be who you were. And nothing could be further from the truth.
0: Yeah, this is the crux of our conversation today, I think. The, the fact that we make assumptions about people's experience, that being treated for an illness and surviving an Ill- illness means that everything reverts back to square one, that you, you collect $200 as you pass go.
1: Yep, exactly. Well, I... I talk about the, in the book, the demons of survivorship and some of them are no longer certainly, but, but they, but many of the others still linger that we don't think about. Um, PTSD and other psychological issues, fear of recurrence, um, the, the difficulty that relationships face, um, I mean, no disrespect to you as a man, but seven times more often Men leave their female their their um, significant others who are women in the face of a catastrophic illness. Um, women who are already dealing with you know self image, whether it's having lost breasts or scars, um, and then there's there's um, financial toxicity that people don't think about. You know, it, it cancer is expensive even if you have insurance because there's still co pays. And deductibles and loss of work and then finally long-term challenges and so for someone like Susie who was treated early on with massive amounts of radiation to the chest area she now is surviving her fourth cancer and has cardiac issues from from the radiation
0: So the full scope of what somebody is able to accomplish – well, I'll put it this way. Susie Lay and the Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen that you mentioned earlier, earlier, uh, those were two of the founding members, the 23 people who met at Albuquerque to to get the NCCS off and running. And The full scope of their activities, we've described them as a support group. Uh, But it's probably more than just that. Help us understand exactly what their aims and ambitions are. It's been around for, what, I'm doing some quick math here now, like something like 34 years. 35 years.
1: Yep. Yep. So the first thing that they went after was discrimination because in 1986, you could be fired. If you had insurance, it could be canceled. You couldn't join the military. So they had in their ranks a, a very brilliant lawyer who helped lead that charge. Um, they did do um, some assemblies. They did 10 assemblies, annual events that brought survivors together. But, you know, to get any one place in the country is, is expensive. So they they stopped doing those. But then they did a most miraculous thing. The CEO at the time was Ellen Stovall. And Louis Farrakhan had just held his Million Man March. She was frustrated at the social apathy Uh, about survivorship. And so NCCS staged a a march on Washington. I always tell people to imagine that scene in Forrest Gump where Forrest is talking on the stage in front of the reflecting pool in Washington, D.C., and he says his name and Jenny jumps into the pool, but the place is packed. So that's pretty much what their march looked like, except it was behind where Forrest is standing right at the doorstep of Congress. 200,000 people attended to say no more cancer, increase the funding, and include survivorship. And this organization was also responsible for the Office of Cancer Survivorship to be created at the National Cancer Institute under the National Institutes of Health.
0: And that brings us back to this point, which I think is so crucial. The, uh, the story's never quite over for somebody who's been through this. Nope.
1: Nope. Cancer doesn't end when treatment does. But many of us, many, many of the people that I've met in my 10 years as a survivor will agree that our post-cancer lives are even sweeter than our pre-cancer lives. It's just a question of finding the treasure in in your wreckage. And so many have. And that's the whole premise behind um, the little organization I created, A Second Act.
0: Which is exactly what I wanted to talk about next. Uh, <laughs> this is an organization specifically to, uh, in support of women.
1: We are women centric because women uh, heal differently than men, regardless of uh, of what the issue might be. Um, and so we're women centric, and our whole focus is celebrating and supporting women survivors of all cancers who are giving back to the greater good in their survivorship. There is great healing in helping. It's been studied and proven to be so. Um, So either women have a second act, they tell their stories um, at our annual fundraiser storytelling event, or they're looking for a second act and that's what we guide them to find in our workshops and um, we talk about that at our networking events and, oh, my gosh, COVID has to be over so we can all get back together again. But I'm very proud of that little organization. Yeah. Oh, oh, and I'm sorry. for I always forget to add the really big one. And we give annual microgrants to women who want to launch or grow their second X. So we give three to five $1,000 grants each year.
0: You know, when you mentioned the march in Washington with over 200,000 people attending, I it, every once in a while somebody will say something like this and it and it kind of jogs my memory and I remember that now I remember it as just somebody who has been very distant from the whole topic of cancer. But you, if you watched the nightly news back then, as I did, you know, you'd see a march and you'd say, oh, look, there's a cause, there's a movement, there's some activists. Yep. And you can kind of register it, but not really clue into it. And now you're telling me the, the story, the backstory I should have heard the first time around, which is that... Uh, this was not just about cancer research. Yes, that's part of it. But this is about a more holistic kind of view of what people go through.
1: Yeah. Yep. That's exactly it. And 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 the purpose of this book um, is not—it um, has nothing to do with me or my organization. I'm a biographer. And this just happens to be a group biography. I don't follow them all. That would be confusing. But five of them who— Um, founded and then led the organization. And it is certainly useful to survivors because learning history, the history of who and what you are is important. It's important for the medical community to realize um, what that history is. Young doctors and nurses have no idea Um, we, it's a mini history of oncology, nursing and oncology, social work and psycho oncology, which are disciplines that are every bit as important as, as the oncology part of it itself. The, um, the oncology, the doctors, the oncologists, and, um, and then of course it's, it's a tribute to a group of people who came together and created a social movement. I mean, this is a blueprint for a social movement.
0: It's a great story and a remarkable people that you talk about. And yes, I I caught the drift. This is, in fact, a biography of a movement told, Mm -hmm. of course, through the lives of some pretty real people and and people you've come to know and love as well. Uh, Judy Pearson, such a pleasure to have a chance to visit with you about this. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
0: Judy Pearson, author of a new volume, From Shadows to Life, a biography of the cancer survivorship movement. She's also founder of the nonprofit A Second Act. Fostering solidarity among survivors of a devastating disease can keep those survivors afloat when life might otherwise drag them down. Groups that offer this kind of service also sometimes help with scientific breakthroughs, with funding to save future lives. Sometimes campaigns pop up that make a really big splash. And in a moment, we're going to talk with the mother of an ALS patient who spurred the ALS ice bucket challenge. Remember that? That was a pretty big splash. Constant Wonder will be right back. Welcome back to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. Our focus this hour hasn't been so much on the devastation something like cancer can bring, but we've been talking about the survivors and the season after surviving. But oftentimes, even with a prognosis of a terminal disease, the people affected can rally to the cause of fighting that disease for others, if not for themselves. Uh, We're going to talk next about ALS, often known as Lou Gehrig's disease. We're going to learn about a family that launched the famous Ice Bucket Challenge that raised over $200 million for research. Nancy Freight's son, Peter, was diagnosed at age 27, but this husband, father, and former college basketball player, he just refused to back down. Ditto for his mother, Nancy. In my conversation with Nancy, she expresses no surprise that her son, rallied from his diagnosis to have such an enormous impact on the world of ALS.
2: He was the Pete I raised. He was the Pete who, in kindergarten, his teacher told me that all the children would wait until Pete showed up so that he could organize them and tell them what game they were going to play. And I got a little, when she said that, I kind of was like, oh, is he pushy? Is he, you know, cocky? And she looked right at me and she goes, Mrs. Frades, he is a true leader. He does it with kindness and inclusion, and every kid loves him. And throughout Pete's whole career on the athletic field and off the athletic field, those were the themes that were always given to us, was that he rose uh, ahead of the crowd, but he brought the crowd along with him, with his charisma, with his authenticity, and and with his kind and loving heart. So um, So it was not... It was surprising because of the diagnosis and only because of the diagnosis. Also, six hours after the fact that he could digest this and, and strategize that quickly. And then the ultimate words that he said that night was, I've been chosen for this. This is my new team.
0: When he talked about a team, and I know that you dubbed it, or he dubbed it, Team Freight Train, uh, right. What was the aim for this team? what was the what was the the, the goal for them to ac- accomplish?
2: So Pete had known that he it, what I always say about Pete is he never had a fleeting friendship. When you met my son, no matter if it was on the baseball field or in Europe or if it was in the classroom at Boston College, um, you became his friend. He was an early adopter to social media, so he would right away um, get you on Facebook and, and friend you and stay in touch with you and congratulate you and stay part of your life, even if it was only through social media. So in the days that followed after the diagnosis, we all sat down and we, we turned it the circles of Pete when we were looking at, you know, what treasure do we have here? What can we bring to this effort and, and, do, and complete this vision that Pete has set? And we realized that it was everyone who knew and loved Pete that were, there was power in numbers. And Pete, for his part, was very smart. And and one of the things that he said was, you know, Lou Gehrig has been the face of this disease. But how do you remember Lou Gehrig? you remember Lou Gehrig on July 4th giving the luckiest man speech, standing in a baseball uniform, walking, talking, picking up a frame? He said, that's not ALS. He said, I'm going to document my journey with video on Facebook and social media because he knew that the progression of ALS was a very visual one. So he was so smart and so exact as to how we were going to do this. We were going to, instead of journaling in a book, we were going to journal on Facebook because he knew that he was in top peak physical Um, strength at age 27 and he knew as this disease progressed through his body that it was going to be it was going to be heart-wrenching just to see it happen to him and um, and that's how we grew Team Freight Train so when I tell our story I say you know really people think of August 2014 but this started day one in 2012 and for two and a half years We treated it as a business we treated it as als being our product we were entrepreneurs our whole life and our children were all business um people so we knew we could market we knew we could network we knew we could merchandise and that's exactly what we did and i think back to the pivotal point happened the day after when we were sitting around the table trying to, you know, formalize our strategy, and we made a pivotal, pivotal decision, and that was to market ALS, not to market a charity. So we didn't hook our, our wagon to any specific organization. We just said, we need people to educate themselves to this disease, because if they just educate themselves to the disease, they're going to find it unacceptable. It's just that people don't understand. They don't know the reality. They hear it. They know it's bad. They think about Lou Gehrig, but they have no idea the day-to-day journey of an ALS patient and their family. And that, I think, was the beginning of changing the trajectory because for two and a half years, we had gear. We had events. We would show up at ALS, all the ALS organizations, with large groups of people. We would raise large groups of uh, large amounts of money for all different ALS. We really made our name in the ALS world for two and a half years. And during that journey, also Pete was mentoring other ALS patients. And and Pete. Because he was very charismatic and he had such an amazing story to tell, the media had already picked up on Pete prior to Ice Bucket, even if it was just the local Boston media. But three months into Pete's diagnosis, he had been called down to Bloomberg TV and he did the Charlie Rose show. So he was already out saying, look at me, I'm an ALS patient. And and that is, I believe, the foundation of what happened at, in March uh, in August of 2014. It was the culmination of all those decisions and all that work.
0: So, was the ice bucket challenge a calculated kind of strategy or uh, a, a, a a marketing uh,
2: mm-hmm. uh, plan? Sure, sure. Well. First of all, we, um, we did not create the Ice Bucket Challenge. The Ice Bucket Challenge had been out on the internet for a good six to eight months ahead of August 1st, 2014. It had been, um, I think, because there have been a number of journalists that have done their due diligence to find out who actually poured the first ice bucket. And I believe it goes back to women's basketball in Phoenix, Arizona for a coach who was diagnosed with cancer. And that was six to eight months before August. So it had gone around and around. And what happened is it hit uh, the Professional Golfers um, Association. And it went to a golfer, a pro golfer down in Florida named Chris Kennedy. And Chris Kennedy's cousin's husband um, was suffering for ALS for about 12 years. She lived up in Westchester County, New York. And Jeanette Finershaw, after uh, Chris Kennedy sent it up to her, was the first one to go outside on her back deck, do an ice bucket challenge, but she was the first one to post it on Facebook. She posted it on Facebook, and she tagged three friends and said, hey, can you do this for Anthony, her husband? Well, one of those friends did it and posted it on her feed, well, she just happened to be mutual friends on Facebook with a boy named Pat Quinn, who lives in Yonkers, New York. Pat Quinn is a AL, 30-year-old ALS patient who, when he was diagnosed one year almost to the day after Peter, went on the internet and found Peter Frates, saw Peter Frates, and said, he looks just like me. So he and his wife, came up and visited with my son and his wife um, and had an enormous bond. So Pete mentored Pat to build Quinn for the Win, kind of in the same fashion of Team Freight Train. So Pete and Pat were very close. Well, Pat sees this ice bucket challenge, and he contacts Pete. Pete then calls my husband and I into his room, now, Pete at this time was completely paralyzed, was on a feeding tube, and had lost his ability to speak. So he was actually communicating by typing with his eyes on his computer and sending us te- text messages. We went into his room, and right on his screen, he wrote, this is it. You see, Pete set the vision, and what he saw was a trajectory He didn't know what the vehicle was going to be. But when he saw it, he knew. And what I always say is, what's the difference from all those other organizations that or diseases or causes in in the eight months prior to August of 2014? It was that Pete and Pat made an immediate decision to make it their own and then to strategize. And that's exactly what we did. He told us, called my other son, to come in and to teach us all how to use social media at a high level. We knew we had treasure. We had our, we had about 6,000 followers by that point after the two and a half years. So we knew we had a treasure. We knew Pete had the circles of all these people he had always networked with. And that's what we did, is we pushed it out to all these different, and, and I would say, the, the, the strongest one was the Boston College community because my husband, myself, my daughter, and my son are all graduates of BC. So we all went out into our classmates and everyone that we knew and said, hey, can you do this? And we knew they would do it because for two and a half years they were by our side saying, anything I can do for you. So then we called in the favors. And the thing exploded literally right before our eyes.
0: So there was then a calculated attempt to conjoin the ice bucket challenge concept specifically mm-hmm. with ALS.
2: We absolutely, absolutely, that was it. That was he was waiting. He was lying in wait. And I always say, oppor- you never know when opportunity is going to pass you by, but if you live present in your life, you will identify opportunity. And he. Saw it, and we did. We we strategized. We immediately said, "This is." We, we actually uh, tutored people in how to do it, and then we added a hashtag, um, hashtag Ice Bucket Challenge, or hashtag ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, or hashtag Strikeout ALS, which was the hashtag we had been using for two and a half years. All three of them at one point were in top ten trending on on. Um, social media. So we, we told them, this is what you do. We went on. We were tagging people in, in comments. We were liking everybody. We were thanking people. It was all very much thoughtful in what we did. It was very per- purposeful.
0: And the funds that eventually were raised were earmarked to go where specifically?
2: So that, I think, is, is the, the story in the story is, you see, we just were doing it as an awareness campaign. We just wanted people to say ALS because we knew... If if people were doing this, I, people were going to look up Ice Bucket Challenge, correct? I mean um, ALS, excuse me. They were going to they were going to educate themselves to, uh, to ALS, which is really what we set out to do from day one. We because this is what we knew, Marcus. We knew that if people educated themselves to this disease, they would find it unacceptable. And then the funds would follow, and that's exactly what happened. What they did is we—it started in the first couple of days with you know the the videos, and and then there's data for Wikipedia and Google for people searching ALS, which you know there's tons of data on on how high that was, and then my brother-in-law who takes care of Pete's website, he's our webmaster, he would get pinged every time someone would go to Pete's website. You know, this was back, you know, people they hear this, and they this was back in 2014, so it's it was a little more advanced these days. But his phone, he, he texted me, and he said, what is going on? His phone was literally pinging, like jumping up and down on the table. It was pinging so much. And as soon as he said that to me, I realized people are looking for a place to – just donate. They didn't even know, right? So what we did is we went on, Pete's. We, we thought very carefully about this, and we said, we'll keep sending people to PeteBrady.com, but what we'll do is we'll put a short snippet right on the front page of his website, five of the top ALS organizations, the ones we support, um, with their mission and their links right to their donate pages. And, and that's basically how the money went. Now, the most of the money, when it went worldwide, we have an international alliance of ALS organizations. And the, the largest one is the ALS Association in the United States. So when all was said and done from that August 2014, the ALS Association of the United States received $115 million. But the International Association of ALS Organizations aggregate was a quarter of a billion.
0: That's just phenomenal in this whole story that, that something could, could take off like this. What was it like to see celebrities join in? I mean, what's the, for instance, what's the, the, the Bill Gates connection?
2: Well, I think we always, people always ask us what was our favorite, and we always say it was Bill Gates. Because he, um, when he, he gave his speech to my little family that night of diagnosis, when he used the word unacceptable and underfunded, he then said to us, I'm going to get this disease in front of philanthropists like Bill Gates." Those were his words six hours after diagnosis. So when we saw Bill Gates' Ice Bucket Challenge, all I could think of was he did it. And Bill Gates didn't just go to the sink and get a thing of water and put it over his head. It was a very beautifully produced little video. And um, it touched our hearts. Um, it, 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 you know... ALS is a horrible, horrific, and frightening journey for anybody's loved one. And in the middle of all this, where I was now dealing with my almost 30-year-old who couldn't hug me anymore, who couldn't call me mom anymore, who couldn't run and, and hit a ball or do any of the things that he prided himself on and loved so much to do anymore, but to see that he in in my darkest hour, which was his a, a diagnosis, for him to state that and to see it become a reality, the, the pride of a parent, it, it, I can't even put into words what that meant to us. And then as other celebrities started doing it, again, remember, we were very purposeful and very driven by our mission. So... We knew when Justin Timberlake, who was probably the first, I would say, large or A-list, whatever, celebrity to do it, the morning that he did it, I looked at my husband and I said, here it goes. This, this is it. This this is going to go places we have now never imagined. And, um, and we knew that it would just catch on, and, and it did. I mean... How far did this go? I have been asked to speak. I've gone to Australia. Um, Now, Australia has a very strong ALS slash MND, motor neuron disease, which is what they call it in Europe and Australia, um, association. Very strong. They have a lot of research going on there. Um, Very much... um, took hold of the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, and I believe there was $17 million raised in Australia. And I was asked to go to Australia and and speak, and I was on their morning Today show uh, kind of show and um, spoke to different um, groups at colleges and ALS organizations. I've spoken in Mumbai, India. Um, I went to Stockholm. I've been... Uh, to Austria I've, I've been all over the world because people took not only this cause, not only saw ALS for what we were trying to do, for what for the tragic and absolute terrifying disease that it is, but they saw a family, and they saw a family who was motivated and did everything purely. Out of I always, I always laugh because I call it a very selfish agenda. My selfish agenda, I just wanted to save my son. That was how this all started. We just wanted to save Pete. Now, yes, over the years, our scope grew, and, of course, my heart grew because I got to meet ALS patients all over the world, but it truly was an effort to try to save my child.
0: Now, in his final years, did Pete sense any kind of gratification if he was, he, he, he was able to see this momentum build wasn't he?
2: he? He saw the whole thing, and then he actually was the recipient of many, many accolades and honors, um, as in his final years, um, which the disease uh, Pete 's disease was a very aggressive form. Um, the ice bucket challenge was in August of 2014 and I've stated the condition he was in in August of 2014. Well, in February of 2015, Pete lost his ability to breathe and he made a pivotal decision that um, all ALS patients make when the disease um, goes after and stops their diaphragm from working. They either choose to um, pass on probably within two to six months after um, their forced vital capacity uh, reduces to a very low level, or they choose to go on life support, a ventilator. And Pete was 30 years old. He had just had a daughter in August on August 31st, 2014. So of course he decided that he was going to go on a ventilator. So for the past for the the past. Uh, five years of Pete's life, he was on literally life support. But we would take him um, to a lot of different um, organizations that wanted to honor him, um, very high-level things. Uh, The Baseball Writers of America gave him an award which we went to New York and he got to meet a lot of high-level uh, baseball players. The Boston Red Sox signed him to a lifetime contract. They gave him a world series ring. Um, I, that probably the one that resonates the most with Pete is um, in the last, I believe it was two years before he passed when he was in, when he couldn't travel anymore. The NCAA Um, gave Pete uh, an Inspiration of the Year Award for all college athletics. And we were honored when Dr. Emmerett, the president of the NCAA, um, decided to get on a plane and bring the award to our home and hand it to Pete directly. So Pete got to enjoy um, so many accolades and, and listen to... And what was most important to Pete was the what he did for other ALS patients because he knew that it wasn't AL what like it was in 2012 now people were saying ALS and I have thousands of letters and emails that we got during that period of ice bucket from ALS patients and families just saying I guess one, one that encapsulates the whole thing. With My father has been suffering with ALS for five years. He, he doesn't get out of bed anymore. He's in a deep depression. But ever since this ice bucket challenge started, every morning we have to get him in his chair in front of his computer, and he sits there all day and watches ice bucket challenge. But what's most important to him is that they're singing ALS. And that, to me, pretty much sums up how honored we are that we were the custodians of this, of this amazing event.
0: Nancy Freitz is an ALS advocate and co-founder with her late son Peter of the Ice Bucket Challenge. You can listen back to past episodes of Constant Wonder at byuradio.org and Apple, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.